Hello, hello, and welcome to Art Pop Talk. I'm Gianna. And I'm Bianca. Today we have an Art Pop Talk with Dan Lin Fan, a Vietnamese artist and illustrator working in the Tulsa area. We cannot wait for you all to listen to this interview. Dan is fantastic. But before we get into that, we actually have an important art news story to cover, which is the two-year closing of the National Museum for Women in the Arts. Let's do it. Hey, hey, hey. Gianna's sporting a cute little new haircut today. Oh, yeah. She got the infamous curtain bangs because she's bored. (laughs) It looks good. I love it. Yeah, I like them too. How are you, my dear? Um, I'm doing well. Not too much to report. Boy of APT graduated with a master's degree this weekend. So did. Yay. Good job, Andrew. I heard other boy of APT is going into a grad program as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, Theban was accepted into OU's uh, NBA program, so he'll be doing that starting in the fall, which is really exciting. Yay! Making moves. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so before we get into our art news today and our amazing interview with artist Stanley Pham, Jenna, there were a few pop stories that I just thought we needed to cover quickly, which is that Ariana Grande surprisingly got married. Mm, and yes. How do we feel about it? You and I just haven't talked about it yet, so I just thought I would, might as well get your take on this podcast that we do. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited for her that it was kind of an secretive or incognito event for them. I hope it was mm-hmm. what they wanted. I'm sure we're going to get more information about it soon. We haven't had any photos or any kind of interaction with her on social media about it so I've been waiting for that to drop but yeah it's good for her that's awesome did you hear that they had like they they were covering up any type of sound with just like bird noises over speakers so that no paparazzi could possibly get an inclination as to what was happening at Artie's home I haven't heard anything about it it so they got married at her house yes that's my understanding yeah interesting i guess that's not not smart it's just kind of (laughs) creepy i don't know it reminded me of like the hunger games or something i was like okay like i don't know it makes me feel like the speakers yeah that's interesting that makes me very concerned about paparazzi because what are they bugging her house or was it did they get married outside i don't know i don't know and maybe it's that there were just a bunch of people not a bunch of people, you know, a smaller wedding, but that there were characters showing up, I guess, and they didn't want anyone possibly knowing what was happening or overhearing. So I don't know. I thought that was interesting. That is very interesting. Also on Sunday, Lady Gaga made a surprise in-person appearance in West Hollywood, um, and local officials officially granted her the key to the city, declaring May 23rd, Born This Way Day. And uh, it also coincided with the 10-year anniversary of, obviously, the Born This Way album. So I thought that was cute. I was happy to see Miss Gaga out and about. And uh, that makes me excited for, you know, Chromatica. I was listening to it this weekend, which was also the year release of Rain On Me. And I thought of you. And I missed our (laughs) our recording session that we did in your (laughs) old house. It did, in fact, (laughs) rain on me. Um wow it's all coming together yeah I can't believe it's been almost a year of 
Chromatica, I saw Bianca in our Slack feed, which is what we use to communicate for our pop talk. She put in a look into prices for was it Lady Gaga tickets or press release tickets? What were? No, I'm trying to get behind the scenes press access for ABT to the okay. Chromatica concert, and I literally typed in Slack look into press tickets for my to do list. So. Uh, you know, sense. I'm just trying to bring the listeners premium content. That's all I'm trying to do here. I'm just trying to do my job. So You're doing a great job. Appreciate you. <laughs> Thank you. I'm really excited. I was listening to Chromatica quite a bit over the weekend when I was mm-hmm. kind of driving back and forth. And, uh, you know, I'm feeling really ready. I told um, my best friend, Miss Elizabeth Green, who will be coming on the podcast next month, I told her my biggest fear as we kind of go into the summer and make summer plans is that I am waiting in line for the bathroom when Rain On Me or a song from Chromatica plays in a dance hall, and uh, I can't let that happen. It would be yeah. it would be the death of me. Yeah, what a travesty that would be. Um, <laughs> speaking of premium content, though, I started reading your book, which is Seth Rogen's autobiography, and it's pretty entertaining. It's... It's really funny. So if you're looking for like a good, easy read to introduce your hot girl summer, I would definitely recommend your book. You know, Jenna, it's funny you say that because I was at Barnes and Noble this weekend and I saw that book. That was the first time I'd really, I guess, mm-hmm. seen it. And I was like, oh my God, we should talk about this on the podcast. And then like I saw on APT story that you were reading it and I was like, oh shit, like Look at the way the universe works. Also, I tweeted at Seth Rogen and Roxanne Gay, and neither of them responded, so I'm a little disappointed about that, but it's okay. That makes sense. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) If you're a listener, if you wanted to, you know, retweet that and give Seth and Roxanne a little shout out, trying to get them on the podcast, so. It's all the Jewish puns in the book are are really getting me. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) Did you watch his pickle movie? I did. I actually did. Um, It was okay. I really liked it. You know which uh, movie I actually liked was the one he did about being a campaign writer with Charlize Theron. What was that? I didn't see that. That one was actually uh, pretty funny. I liked that one a lot. Didn't that one come out like prime pandemic? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it did. And it came out before the like Jewish pickle movie whatever that was called i liked the pickle movie i thought it was so funny Mm -hmm. yeah it's cute that one was funny listening to him talk about starring in both roles because he had to do each one at different times because he didn't want to shave his beard because to quote seth rogan nothing is worse than a fake beard in a movie Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So he had to film all of his, like, the grandfather or great-grandfather role, and then he filmed his, like, modern contemporary role after, and then they, like, spliced oh, them wow. together. That's yeah. so cool. Yeah. Do it for the beard. <gasps> Seth Rogen, please come on our podcast. I want to talk to you. But I feel like if we if we beg too much, it's just not going to happen, so I got to chill a little bit. <laughs> I'm not cool. I'm not good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, enough chit-chat. Are we ready to get into some art news quickly? Yes, definitely. 
Well, last week, the National Museum for Women in the Arts announced that they will close in August for a two-year renovation that will add gallery space and an education studio, improve accessibility, and upgrade the mechanical system in this historic building. So the project is said to be about $66 million, and it is actually the first renovation since the museum opened in 1987. Director Susan Fisher Sterling said, quote, This renovation really is the preservation project that allows for the reimagining of the space. The museum founder, Wilhelmina Cole Holiday, and her husband Wallace spent $15.5 million to buy the building and renovate it before it opened. And Wilhelmina actually just died this uh, past March at the age of 98. This second renovation will add about 3,000 square feet to its current 20,000 square feet of gallery space. Um, It's going to include larger walls, galleries for contemporary art, and a new visitor orientation gallery meant to improve visitor experience. It's going to restore the building's roof and exterior, upgrade its lighting, climate, security, tech, and improve ADA accessibility. Baltimore-based architect Sandra Vecchio, who is leading the project, said that the new gallery and education space was the result of reorganizing the floor plan. Quote, we came up with an idea like, wouldn't it be great to have a new gallery on the fourth floor with the library and education studio? Wouldn't that be a programmatic win? (laughs) She got a funny quote. Uh, Planning for the project began actually in 2015, and it was delayed by nine months uh, because of the pandemic. So this is a question I had. I was like, at first when I heard the news, I was like, why didn't all of this just take place during the pandemic? I feel like that would have just, I don't know, made more sense to me. But apparently uh, the pandemic and construction costs have uh, increased the price tag. So the museum has raised $50 million from individuals, foundations, and corporations. But the pandemic also gave the museum staff time to test digital plans, which will help with virtual programming when the construction is underway. So I guess that is a plus, is that now that a lot of museums are used to hosting different kinds of programming outside of their usual gallery space, hopefully that won't be a problem for them to kind of keep up uh, different types of education. During the renovation, the museum does plan to hold major exhibitions at other venues in D.C. and offer educational programs in schools. So I was actually talking about this museum over the weekend with um, someone who just graduated in museum studies. So congratulations to you. And this building is really interesting because it's not on the National Mall, but it is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. But the outside of the museum, I really hope that they're able to kind of make the museum more apparent in this city because it's kind of this wedge building in a weird cross street and it doesn't really announce itself that it's basically the only museum in the country that is dedicated to the advancement of women artists it's kind of just this generic gray stone building that matches the rest of the buildings in downtown dc And uh, I think that's at a real detriment to this space. It's a great museum and the inside is really beautiful, but I I really hope that they're able to do a lot more with the outside and really announce this as a 
a huge place for women's advancement in the arts. But and I'm, I'm also happy to see the galleries being renovated. When I was there, the, the architecture of the building is beautiful. The inside is beautiful. But the, the gallery does feel a little kind of dimmed. It, it doesn't feel very lively, I guess, inside. Even though it's, it's a great place, I, I hate to make it sound not as appealing. But I, I hope that the renovation really boosts its presence uh, in the city, but across the country as well. So that when tourists come, they're not just going to the National Mall, but they're really taking this museum into account. Hmm. I wonder if our next segment of art news kind of ties into that last question or commentary that you just posed, Bianca. So another story that we wanted to share today with you all comes from our friend Anna Blake on TikTok. If you remember, Anna joined us in April to talk about separating the art from the artist. So definitely go back and listen to that episode if you haven't already. But Anna made this TikTok about a story from Hyperallergic where they write that when the National Gallery of Art welcomes back visitors after a long pandemic pause on May 14th, the museum's gift shop won't be open for business. Staff who worked in the store as clerks, buyers, and unofficial ambassadors for the museum may be returning in different roles, or maybe not at all. So it turns out that the National Gallery laid off its entire retail division last month, part of a, quote, move to reorganize the museum's approach to commerce. More than a dozen employees learned that their positions at the museum were being eliminated during a virtual staff meeting on April 12th, affecting personnel across the museum's two buildings in Washington, D.C. and its warehouse in Landover, Maryland. Those positions will instead be staffed by Event Network, which is a contractor that runs retail operations for more than 90 museums and cultural institutions across the country. Some of the 27 employees who lost their jobs have an opportunity to return to work at the National Gallery via Event Network, although several expressed concerns that the new job will offer less pay or fewer hours. They'll also lose their Uh, federal benefits, one former National Gallery employee said. Quote, the more a bunch of us who looked, the more we realized some of these jobs aren't full time. There's not anywhere close to what we were getting with our federal benefits. Current and former museum staff who spoke with Hyperallergic asked not to use their name since the museum is requiring affected workers to sign non-disclosure agreements as part of the terms of their exit. All will receive a payout package that includes annual leave, extended benefits, and severance pay. The museum transition comes after years of underperformance in the museum's 8 million retail business. The Smithsonian Institution laid off 237 employees in October, citing 49 million in losses. Similar cuts have hit the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and scores of other art institutions. A survey conducted in March by the American Alliance of Museums found that 43% of workers at U.S. museums had lost income during the pandemic. Yet the National Gallery is an outlier in one respect. Over the course of the pandemic, the museum has retained all its staff and continued paying full wages and benefits. Current and former museum employees say that the retail staffers were continually reassured by management that their positions would not be outsourced. This was a constant worry in the shops, they say, because the problems were so apparent. 
quote, these used to be good jobs where you can support your families and have medical benefits for your kids, one former National Gallery employee says. These were decent jobs, but they were chipped away at over time. So if you'd like to read the whole article from Hyperallergic, we are going to link that in our resources page uh, and also Anna's TikTok as well. So I would definitely recommend watching Anna's TikTok because she does mention a couple things. It was interesting to find out, you know, it feels like one of the oldest stories in the books, but a bunch of these upper management people are making quite a bit of you know, good money. One of their directors is bringing in a little bit over a million dollars and then 14 other senior staff members make over 150k a year. So it's these workers and also frontline workers in the pandemic who are the people who are losing their jobs. It's interesting to see that they can be consumed by event network. However, There were a lot of pluses in being in the role that they were at, specifically, as Anna mentions in her TikTok, the federal benefits being a huge, huge advantage that they will no longer have because Event Network is a for-profit business. Yeah, this is just so ridiculous. And I know that this has been going on in museums for a while. This also takes place a lot of the time with security staff, which is something that For example, accounts like A Better Guggenheim and Change the Museum have been talking about over the course of the pandemic that frontline workers and museums are not getting the benefits, the pay that they deserve for being frontline essential staff, let alone they appear to be expendable by by the institution that they work for. And that is so disrespectful in the first place, but it really is a detriment to art institutions. I mean... I don't want to work for a place like that that sees frontline people as not worthy of pay or benefits. I mean, it's just ridiculous. These are the people who are protecting everything that you value inside. And for you to to throw them away and fire them like that is just it's absolutely ridiculous. And I just I feel terrible for also the National Gallery employees who found out about this over a Zoom call. Yeah, I mean, that's hard. That's that's. Yeah, that's just the cherry on top of it all. It's kind of hard to see a museum also outsourcing like big business at the same time. Like I I'm not going to pretend like I know all the ins and outs of museum gift shops and how people are attaining their museum merchandise and big business is probably a part of that. But to outsource it in this way and then know how it's going to cause this huge detriment to your employees who have been Longtime loyal employees in good standing is kind of hard to see. Yeah, and then making them sign an NDA. No, right? Is that about right? What the fuck is wrong with you? Right. I'm sorry, but you're making your your fired employees sign an NDA because you don't want to pay them benefits. I'm sorry. That just that makes me so mad. And again, you're you're right. We don't know all the ins and outs about it, but what the hell. It would be really interesting to do a follow-up on this story and maybe other museums who have had to make decisions, particularly in the pandemic when it comes to pay. We have an art pop tart that was writing a thesis about pay in arts fields and particularly women's experiences and relationship to that and particularly what's going on during this time. So it could be really cool to have her on if you guys are interested in exploring topics like this a little bit more. 
Oh, definitely. And we can link that Instagram mm. on our resources as well. Yeah. Um, She's got some that great Instagram page is awesome. Infographics for um Onyx. Yeah, we'll link her Instagram. I just my my thoughts are with those employees and it's just it's really important to keep talking about this. And I'm really grateful for Anna who made the TikTok about it and hopefully that reaches um a large audience and people people know what's going on. It's just it's really messed mm-hmm. up to see museums take action like this it's really disheartening so mm-hmm. absolutely and if anyone wants to come on the podcast under a pseudonym you are more than welcome oh my gosh that would be amazing or wow. you know we won't disclose any of your information but if you want to talk about your experience yeah please come on that's what we're here for um yeah but yeah. we are very very excited in some better news to have our guest artist on today dan lynn fam Dan Lin Pham is a Vietnamese artist and illustrator in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Pham uses a variety of arts mediums from watercolor, sculpture, and digital art and illustrations. She completed her BFA in studio art at Oklahoma State University in 2016. Pham had solo shows in Oklahoma and Texas. She has been featured in publications such as Explicit Asia, Everyday Humans, A Slut Zine, and Modern Easta Group AP Publishing. Pham's work focuses on her ongoing fascination with her identity, socialization, and the construction of culture. Her work aims to redefine what it means to be an Asian American woman. I feel like everyone's going to love her work, but our Oklahoma girlies, gays, and theys are really going to appreciate, I think, the uh, cowgirl aesthetic that we're being provided in Pham's work. I'm just so obsessed. We're going to link all of Dan's resources for you, her Instagram, also a place where you can go and buy those fabulous prints. I got to get on there and buy the cowgirl. I'm really excited. So we hope that everyone enjoys our art pop talk with Dan Lin Pham. everyone and welcome back we are joined by dan fam welcome to the show we're so excited to have you here with us we were wondering if you wouldn't mind can you please introduce yourself to our listeners and talk to them a little bit about the core ideals associated with your work of course so i'm really excited to be a part of the show uh, my name is Dan Lin Pham, and I'm a Vietnamese-American artist. I was born in Vietnam and moved to the States when I was one, and I've been in Tulsa, Oklahoma since I was six. Um, my body of work focuses on identity, socialization, and the construction of culture, and I'm trying to redefine what it means to be an Asian-American woman and tackling pre-existing stereotypes. Dan, thank you so much for being here. I also wanted to say that we were recommended that Dan <laughs> come on the show by a listener. so. That's really exciting. We're really, um, we're really happy to have you on. I was some reading some interviews about you, and I was reading one that said you actually took a, um, a hiatus from art after your graduation. But with the pandemic, you said that your Instagram actually became quote a public journal of private life. 
And the pandemic has either forced us to or allowed us to kind of return to different projects um, and reevaluate kind of these many different paths that we who study the arts can take. So can you talk a little bit about your hiatus from art and why you returned to it um, and how Instagram became kind of a base for that return? Yeah, of course. So um, after graduating, I spent most of my time trying to secure like a nine to five kind of job. And I really wanted to fight against a whole like starving artist stereotype um, when I graduated from schools, just mainly to prove to my parents that like you can obtain a job with benefits and like a 401k with an art degree. Um, so I was consumed with that mentality of like adulting, I guess. And I somehow fell into the rat race of life and got caught up in this competitive routine and grueling pace of life. Um, essentially, I was just too burnt out from keeping up with that rat race during those three to four years post-grad to make any art. And I used to get like really embarrassed when classmates or professors asked if I was still creating because I didn't make a single piece of artwork since graduating until 2020. Um, so when the pandemic hit, it gave me a lot of free time. And I was also feeling a lot of worry and stress just because of everything that was going on. Um, so drawing has always been an outlet for me. So I like to scrounge my house for some old Micron pens and start drawing again to distract myself from all the 2020 scares. Um, so I guess in a way, the pandemic allowed me to find my way back to creating art and using art as an outlet again. Um, so I started sketching for fun and that quickly led me to finally creating an Instagram for my art and to keep me accountable. Um, and I also made it a goal to be more vulnerable in my work um, because I believe vulnerability is a strength. So that's why my Instagram quickly became kind of like a public diary. Dan, I have to say, when I was also reading some of those articles Bianca was talking about, I felt a little bit selfishly like, oh, okay, like she also took a break. Like it's okay to take breaks because <laughs> um, it, it has been such a crazier and since I graduated and in this pandemic it's been a little bit of the opposite for me like I use the pandemic to focus on other things but it's really wonderful I, mm -hmm. to see that nature and that resilience of art that it's always going to be there for you when you when you need it and when you're in the right headspace to pick it back up I'm curious though from your time from graduation in 2016 uh, what line of if you don't mind me asking what line of work mm -hmm. were you doing besides art if you were working so to speak a typical nine to five <laughs> <laughs> um, so I am still working now a full-time job so art's just kind of been like any free time I have I'll do it um so I work at a nonprofit. We tackle it's a nonprofit that tackles like anti-poverty. Um, so we focus on, I guess, providing like early childhood education for kids, just to give them like a better start in life, and just to like career advancement for parents, and just kind of finding the right resources for parents around Tulsa. Oh, that's amazing! Do you guys cool. do any kind of local partnering with some of the museums in the area? And um, so since we are a Head Start agency, so um, we mostly deal with just like little littles, like very from infant to I think like preschool. So we don't really deal with the museums. I wish we did, though. That'd be a lot yeah. of fun. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really great that you're so open about this experience because just speaking to that kind of level of embarrassment that you were talking about with your professors when people ask you about your profession, I know that it's something we've been just kind of harping on the past few months at APT. I know Gianna and our good friend Audrey um, and myself, we're, we're just like all dealing with this issue of 
we really want to work in the arts, but why are we struggling so much to work in the arts? And I just think it's really, really awesome that you're talking about it and you're open about it because I think there is a type of career shaming that happens in the arts and particularly with artists. Jen, I don't, you know, you, you could speak to this better than I could probably, but it's so funny. Like these conversations just keep coming up in the context of 2020 and thinking about workplaces and um, stuff like that. Well, I think especially it's come up in the context of this year and being able to have a different kind of work life and being able to like work from home has proved to have a more flexible nature for artists that have multiple incomes. So that's been really interesting conversations to have with folks. But yeah, it has been challenging. And I understand those expectations of needing to prove yourself, needing to prove the nature of your degree and the pressures that come with that, but also um, kind of really needing to be in the right headspace to make art. And this pandemic proves to be really difficult uh, to make art in, especially in comparison to something like my work. I didn't really feel like that is what the world needed at that moment. So I was kind of grappling with these two things. I don't know if you ever felt that in the pandemic as well, Dan. I definitely did. I feel like just like with everyone else, I feel like just having more free time and like more autonomy over your day has just kind of opened up a lot more, I guess like freedom and space for me to actually create art. Um, so like, so I'm still working from home. I start, you know, I started working from home at like March of last mm-hmm. year and like, since that shift it's been it's like I feel like since I started creating art again I'm like proud of like having an art degree again so it's like when I entered the workforce when people ask like oh what did you study in school I was almost embarrassed to say like oh, I studied art you know because I could see like how people's like faces change when they talk about that so um so on the podcast we are really interested in exploring these ideas of duality, hypocrisy, and kind of this dichotomous living and thinking. I know for myself, I'm like always like on both sides of a lot of different lines of thought. And you said that your artwork is, quote, kind of like a personal visual diary that moves between personal and external experiences. On the personal side, you explore cultural identity and the economy of being raised uh, in a really conservative Vietnamese household, and at the same time, participating in a predominantly white American culture. So can you talk about these dualities and how they are echoed in your work and what the larger social contributions that you see as being important to exploring and embracing duality rather than confining yourself to kind of one of those boxes. Um, even if from the outside, people may not kind of view those those two separate worlds as being aligned. That's a good question. So <laughs> um, growing up, I always felt like there was two versions of me that I had to kind of keep separate from one another. So there was like the American version of me and then the Vietnamese version of myself. Um, it wasn't until college when I realized that I could exist within both worlds by embracing both sides and kind of allowing like my American peers to see my Vietnamese version of me and vice versa. Um, that was, I guess that was kind of the start of my journey from constantly trying to whitewash myself to fit into my white American peers. And I started to work on redefining my own version of what it means to be Vietnamese American. And then I'm starting to also like reclaiming words that used to make me feel ashamed or alienated. So like since creating my Instagram page, I've had like the wonderful experience of being able to connect with a lot of other Asian American peers and learn about their experiences growing up and finding out that like we have a lot of shared experiences. 
And for a lot of Asian Americans who grew up in a predominantly white American culture, like I felt like they too felt a sense of gatekeeping around their Asian mm-hmm. peers. Um, and so like, there's this joke that like when someone of Asian descent acts white, that they are being like a banana. So it's like the whole yellow on the outside, white on the inside. Um, and so this has been like a big motif for me in the past and it still trickles into my recent work. Um, so like the feeling of not fitting into either categories or like not being Asian enough for Asians and not being white enough for my white peers. And so like in college, I tried to reclaim the term banana as my own. So I created a series called the Banana Identities Cookbook. And it focuses on like finding common grounds with the two identities and how it's okay for me to claim myself as both Vietnamese and American. And then if I were to touch on like my more recent work, it focuses on empowering other Asian peers in this diaspora to embrace like their duality and to reclaim their heritage. Um, I've been, I guess like I've been coining myself as the Viet Q cowgirl because I feel like it fits both versions of me. Like Viet Q is a term Vietnamese people use for Vietnamese people who live outside of Vietnam. And it's sort of a play on being a proud Viet Q and other, and like how other peers look at me when I tell them I live in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. It's like growing up, I always felt like I was looked at as if I were some sort of like lonesome cowboy Asian whenever I interacted with my cousins who lived in states with a larger Vietnamese population. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just, I'm hoping to eliminate the feeling of alienation by allowing my work to be a public diary of me working through my duality and finding pride within it. Speaking of that, as a follow-up, one of my favorite pieces of yours is the Howdy Y'all Cowgirl. And on your Instagram, your caption reads, quote, don't Google search Asian cowgirls. It gets pretty weird living and being part of that Southern environment, particularly, as you said, in Oklahoma, outsiders do have that view of the cowboy aesthetic. So um, can you talk a little bit more about that connection between geography and identity um, and just go into a little bit more depth about how that's coming through in some of your pieces? That piece is kind of a play on like the hypersexualization that like Asian women experience and like, you know, growing up in a predominantly white Southern Midwestern environment. Um, so like if you Google searched anything with the words like Asian and girl together, it gets you into like a weird part of the internet where a lot of the images are like hypersexual, hypersexual images of Asian women. And then on the flip side, if you Google image something like with the words American and girl, the results are not nearly as sexual. Mm-hmm. So like for the longest time, I felt like I couldn't partake in that cowboy aesthetic due to this hypersexualization. Um, but I wanted to like make this piece to highlight the sexualization, but also reclaim it with an imagery of like the modern day Asian American woman that's like strong, she's hip, she's cool, you know, so it's like the cool, strong Asian cowgirl. Uh, Dan, as you were just speaking about and and looking at your writings in your work, you aim to redefine what it means to be an Asian American woman. You are changing that definition and how that definition meets the goals of your work. And I think you're even that example of that banana is so interesting because not only are you bringing a context of vocabulary and kind of slang into your art, but you're also creating those visual languages and letting others be a part of that conversation as well. So mm-hmm. your pieces involving like food in particular, I think are fascinating. Also at Art Pop Talk, we like to fixate on how the intersection between the arts and pop culture kind of take place in our world. And as Gianna was kind of saying, we also see that happening in your work as well. So 
How um, do you kind of see value and purpose in merging these ideas of art, pop, and identity? So identity is an integral part of my work, and I draw from my lived experiences to create my work. Current events have become such a large part of artistic expression, especially on social media, and it's hard not to be impacted on a personal level by those current events. Um, Since my work serves as a personal diary, my response to those current events naturally flows into my work. And so the style of my pieces being like loud, colorful, and graphic mainly serves to help position Asian women as loud, strong, powerful, in contrast to stereotypes of Asian women being like quiet and invincible. And looking at some of your writings, how you talked about this idea of the female warrior and breaking that idea of wanting contemporary Asian women to not be seen as docile or submissive, but to go back to that history of the matriarchy and have these contemporary warrior women, which is so cool. And I think that really comes through with your, um, I don't want to say aggressive, but really assertive color palette as well. So we wanted to talk about, (laughs) yeah, of course, we wanted to talk about your piece that you sent us called Same Old, Same Old. In the work, the text reads, quote, and Asian hate is not new. So can you please talk about this work a little bit more and also share with us how the arts and pop culture can eject us from that same old, same old way of addressing Asian hate crimes? So I made that piece in response to the Atlanta shootings that happened in March this year, um, where the shooter targeted Asian women. Um, I was infuriated at how the media handled it, per usual, and how they gave the shooter, who's a white male, more respect than they gave the victims. Like I watched as they like butchered the victims' names and how they gave the shooter like positive intent by saying he was just having a bad day. Um, I feel like Asians have always had to fight to be seen um, just because our my, like model minority status leaves our pain unseen. And so Asian Americans are constantly fighting to be seen in the same class as white Americans because we're always seen as perpetual foreigners. Um, so with the rise in Asian hate crimes in the past year, I feel that people think that this hate is something new that Asians are experiencing and it's not. Um, Asian hate and xenophobia have been around for the entirety of American history. And I feel that prior to the pandemic, I remember people would be shocked when I tell them a recent racist experience that I've had. It always met with like, I can't believe that happened to you. And that always leaves me thinking like, no, it's been happening for as long as I can remember, you know? And so that piece spared a lot of like vulnerability from me just to share my experiences growing up, um, being hypersexualized and just kind of making note of the things I grew up just feeling like thinking it was normal to hear that and then realizing as adult, like that's not okay. Um, and it was my way of using the arts and pop culture to kind of further humanize Asians in our experiences. And I was kind of just using my own experiences to help humanize the stop of AAPI hate movement and to give it a sense of gravity. Mm-hmm. I am also curious, just in light of the pandemic and also, again, as you say, not recent aggressions, but aggressions that have been pushed to the forefront during the pandemic, have you, what kind of I guess, um, feedback or criticism or involvement of your work are you getting with the community or in particular in Tulsa? Have you had the opportunity to show in the pandemic digitally or virtually? I'm just curious about hopefully um, the camaraderie or support that you would be receiving during this time. I am overwhelmed by, I guess, the support in Tulsa. I am, I feel like I grew up 
feeling so alienated and I feel like ever since I've kind of opened the doors for everyone to kind of read into my little diary post (laughs) then I guess it's like the support has been overwhelming and I'm really appreciative of it all um so I was I got to show at Rattlesnake Cafe at BA um and just like everyone I talked to or just kind of finding other Asian American peers that have come up to me and just tell me like like I've experienced this too is just Mm -hmm. so comforting even for like it's like they felt comforted by my art, but then at the same time, I felt so comforted by their experience just because I'm like, okay, it's not just me. Like, I am not crazy for feeling this way. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I feel like Tulsa has been great. Um, I mean, again, like the art community in Tulsa is amazing. And I feel like they've just kind of welcomed it with open arms and I'm really grateful for it. That's fantastic. That's, That's so, so good, good to hear. hear. Um, I'm trying to get to Tulsa, so... I'm trying my best. <laughs> I'm on my way, I promise. <laughs> you guys can have a little party in Tulsa. That would be so fun. I do really need a good art pal, Dan, if I'm if I'm being real. So this is all just been to course you to be my best friend. Um <laughs> Um things I was curious about is since you went to OSU, Bianca and I are both OSU graduates. I'm curious as what exactly your degree was in. Was it graphic design or was it studio? And what did your work look like while you were studying in school? Was it vastly different from what you were doing now? Or is it has it kind of followed like a nice pathway for you? Um, vastly different. I feel like if you looked at my work in college to now, it probably just feels like two completely different people who made it. Um, but in college, I feel like I wasn't ready to open up about my experiences yet. And so a lot of my artwork, like I feel like you could see, I guess, like the pain in it, but you wouldn't recognize it as like an Asian American experience pain. Um, so I went to school for studio art, but I did do graphic design for a year and I just felt like I wouldn't, I'm not, I wouldn't be the happiest working client based. So I switched over to studio art. Um, and so I, if this, so my two, like, I guess, um, focuses was watercolors and sculpture. And so that's why I still kind of dabble in woodworking still. And then um, watercolors, I have yet to touch again since graduation. But again, been very busy. Um, but yeah, my work is very different. I think I have switched very digitally just for convenience wise um, so I can still produce artwork at the speed that I need to produce it and with the time frame that I have like I guess to make art um, but yeah so yeah. It's, it's very different my old work was a lot of body parts a lot of I think it was more focused on like image just like feeling like my looks and like how just like not being represented. And so it was like, I was basing off my image on a lot of like European beauty standards Mm -hmm. instead of like Asian beauty standards. And so my work in college touched on that a lot until senior year, I switched, I started to kind of walk into the Asian American experience. Mm -hmm. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, I think in general, I'm so blown away by the use of your figure. Um, I mean, the way that you manipulate the body and I love like all the twisted arms um I just I I'm I'm a big fan so that's all I'll say about that but if anything I think just in listening to you speak about your experience at OSU at least your background in figurative work and dealing with the figure at an early age in or early time in your career has kind of led you to this work and be able to work more digitally so that's that's cool to hear you never know what your your early work is gonna lead you into some other fun stuff but 
Um, I love knowing that you were in sculpture. I don't meet too many people from the OSU program that went into sculpture. I feel like we are we are a rare sum individual. Yeah, it's like a tight knit group. I feel like the sculpture. I feel like I'm still friends with all the people I took sculpture with, you know, like we're still very close. Yes, yes, because you're so like isolated in your little sculpture bubble. I feel that. Yeah. (laughs) I'm so sad that I didn't get to take any studio classes. I just feel like it makes no sense that I wasn't able to take, like, I want to take a sculpture class. That sounds fun. I want to take watercolor, but no, I guess watercolor, (laughs) those who write about (laughs) art aren't aren't allowed to take it. Well, and it's funny that you say that you have not returned to watercolor, Dan, because I mean, I just took intro to watercolor, watercolor one, and I just recently finished a commission and I started with watercolor and it was a mixed media kind of graphic piece. And um, the whole time it was good because it pushed me out of my comfort zone to do something different and get back into the swing of making. I was like, why did I think watercolor was a good, I like, I'm terrible at watercolor. Like it is a no joke medium. Like, like, I don't know why I thought that was a good idea, but I did it. A lot of patience. A lot of patience that I, I don't know if I have, if I'm being honest. Uh, Yeah. yeah. (laughs) No, I feel you. I feel like that's why I haven't returned to it. So I was like, do I have the patience now in this day and age? I think so. <laughs> Jenna, that's so funny. I remember you, I can't believe you went back to watercolor first. Cause I, I don't actually know how, again, cause I wasn't allowed to take the class how watercolor works, but the idea of like stretching your paper and like getting your, your paper already, like, I want to know more about that. Well, I think it is really interesting to have you on as now highlighting your digital work. There is so much, as you mentioned, that relates to the convenience of digital work, the way that you can produce them um, at a higher rate for your own income, but also for even exhibition purposes. Um, it it is it is so fascinating to see how digital art has taken off in the fine art realm. Um, So to hear that you kind of dappled in graphic design and then ended up doing studio route, um, you know, sometimes life makes sense. And um, I think the work that you're producing now is just incredible. So we like to have our friends on the podcast answer a fun question. We've recently talked about welcoming Chugi into the art history world since even our conversation that we had about it last episode and the episode before I've been hearing a lot of really interesting conversations about Chugi and how it is kind of coded misogyny in the way that we're kind of pinpointing female consumer experiences. I do think that Chugi has revolved around this conversation of particularly female experiences. Um, But regardless of that, Chugi has just been a really interesting topic that we've continued to discuss on Art Pop Talk. So we thought it would be fun or funny to ask the question, what is the chuggiest thing about you? If you had to pick something, something you own, an aesthetic that you might like, or a fandom you participate in? Because as Bianca and I said last episode, I think the chuggiest thing about us is probably art pop talk. <laughs> I feel like the chuggiest thing about me is that I used the term doggo. I felt a little bit attacked when I saw that on the chuggy list. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I heard that the arch nemesis to a chug is the hipsters. And I felt like I've always fell more into the hipster category in the millennial world. 
Um, so I think that's keeping me from living like a heavy chug life. Um, <laughs> plus, like the minute I heard that skinny jeans were out, I was immediately on board with that. I was like, yes, Zoomers, like please take those out. I'm ready. <laughs> so. That is so funny. See, but the thing is like, I need some, I, my body needs some high-waisted pants. I don't care what yeah. fit it is, but like, y'all, we got to keep the the high-waisted energy going. But I totally feel you on the doggo one because I was also, I felt personally attacked, you know, and they were like, you can't say doggo anymore. And I like to say that. And I also like to say floofster. And I was like, oh man, like when I see a dog at the park, like, what am I going to call it now? Just a dog? That's not fun. <laughs> no, I agree. You got to say doggo. Um, well, Dan, so before we let you go, where can everybody find you? Is there anything that you'd like to plug before this lovely interview ends? Yeah, so you can find me on Instagram at danhemet.art. Um, you can also find my passion project with my partner on Instagram at still.mill or by visiting our website at stillmill.store. Um, that's where you'll be able to find, like, able to buy prints. Um, I'm planning to include apparel, and if you want to keep up with my woodworking, Stillmill is the place. And additionally, if you want to learn more about the history of like, Asian Americans in America, I highly recommend watching the PBS documentary called Asian Americans. It's extremely informative on the history of identity and contributions and like challenges experienced by Asian Americans. Um, so would recommend. Amazing. Oh, cool. We're going to have to add that to our watch list for our newsletter so everyone will know where to find that. Uh, we cannot thank you enough for being with us today. Bianca, do you have anything else you want to add? I think that's it. We will link um, all of Dan's handles in the episode show notes for you so you won't have to go anywhere. Uh, just click on her links. Um, we'll also link that special for you guys. Um, Dan, thank you so much for being here. And with that, we will talk to you all on Tuesday. Bye, everyone. Art Pop Talk's executive producers are me, Bianca Martucci-Fink. And me, Gianna Martucci-Fink. Music and sounds are by Josh Turner, and photography is by Adrian Turner. And our graphic designer is Sid Hammond. <laughs>